Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. And we are back for an all-new episode. Keep it. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel, and Oscar nominations were just dropped two and a half hours ago, which means I've been up for eight hours for no reason. Because, you know, they might drop extra early, and I have to be there in case they get anxious and throw them down at 2 a.m. Now, you know... I woke up, and then I read them after they had already been announced. (laughs) (laughs) You did wake up, which is important. Yes. I did did wake up. I did not wake up dead. So there's that. Let's Um, celebrate that, quoth Oprah. I'm on the West Coast today, and so they were insanely early, and I don't do that. I, I feel like I'm used to at a certain point, but then I was just like, you know what? By... Not also being awake at that time, I can also just come into the Oscar conversation online and not see everyone, you know, like competing for attention to get something out as soon as anything happens. I will say there's something nice, though, about being up that early, because at that point, it's not really about I guess there are hot takes, but it's also just people like racing to drop every new statistic that just happened, like 16 first-time Oscar nominees in acting categories and things like that. So it's nice to be a part of that rush. But at the same time, I also think you accidentally get into Twitter fights with people who have only seen one nominated movie and are pretending they saw all of them. So you do miss that. Uh, I mean, uh, that's most people all right, the time. It's not right. even just Oscar Day. I feel like it's always, every year, 265 days a year, uh, uh, that you will get in an argument with someone and they're like, this person was snubbed, or they'll be like, this per- movie's awful. And then sometimes you have to ask yourself, is this person who's saying this movie is awful, have they actually seen this movie? Right. They They have an idea of the movie and they have an idea of what they should feel about the movie, but it doesn't feel like it's coming from a place of a genuine opinion or genuine analysis. Yeah, no, I've, I've, you truly do learn that, you know, like once you are dealing with people behind a computer screen, that people just pretend they've seen whatever. So I feel like the Oscar discourse, and we'll of course wade into that today, has been fun and also mind numbing. Yes. Well, it's also just crazy to me that we still have basically two months until the Oscars. I mean, I just, yes. I feel like I've expired all of my talk about the Fablemans. I simply have seen the movie. I've discussed the movie. I know what it's about. And now we've got to move on from this. But I feel that way every year about a movie. Like, it felt like I was just, in 2010, I felt like I had discussed The Fighter for five years. I was like, wow, those, you know, those people sure were mad at each other in that movie. Okay. Okay. We're done. And you know what? We can discuss The Fighter some more. Okay, we're coming right back to it. <laughs> Arguably should have really been Amy Adams' win. Mate, who won that year? Melissa Leo for the same movie. Mm, well, listen, she was being considered 
Yes. And let me tell you something. <laughs> and we were being considerate. Yeah. <laughs> and Amy Adams, she's never considered. She, imagine Amy Adams walking to you, walking up to you and saying, consider, like getting in your face. She simply wouldn't do it. She doesn't play the game. I I think about Amy Adams so little, unfortunately. It's someone I love, too. But I just saw a tweet yesterday about Disenchanted, and I forgot that movie even came out. And I'm excited to watch it because I loved Enchanted. I love Adam Shakespeare. I love Amy Adams. I love Patrick Dempsey, you know, when he's um, not in a hospital scrubs. But I truly forgot that the movie came out. Amy Adams' past few years have been, I don't want to say flop era, but definitely mystery era. Like, she she technically is still in on death row for Hillbilly Elegy. So you have to understand, maybe that's why you're not thinking about her, because she's on the Green Mile right now. She's in jail. Her yes, and Glenn right. Close. Right. Glenn Close, one of three people to be nominated for a Razzie and an Oscar for the same performance. I don't know how I feel about that. I thought she was sort of the saving grace of Hillbilly Elegy. But to put the words grace in the same sentence as Hill, Hillbilly Elegy is already a step too far. You know I didn't see that damn movie. I'm, no, I mean, <laughs> on principle, I understand that. But as, you know, a doctor of the Oscars, I had to go and watch it myself. Of course, you know, in case you had to perform some triage. Yes, <laughs> precisely. It's the only doctor-related thing that popped into my head at the moment. In Miami over New Year's, somebody put on Grey's Anatomy Season 2, and I had forgotten how much Patrick Dempsey at one point was just full Sean Penn understudy. Like, the same face. <laughs> a lot of a lot of gruff, um, raspy speaking, too. Yes. Right. Yeah. Pissed. Yeah. You, you, you feel maybe he doesn't smoke, but he has a smoker's bravado. Yes. Mm-hmm. I wonder what his relationship with Zelensky is. Yes. That will be investigated in the years to come. <laughs> uh, we're going to get into the Oscars, the nominations, um, the reactions to the noms, etc. I mean, you've, you've heard us do this shit before. <laughs> right. You're <laughs> familiar, right? Yeah. What are they going to do with the Oscar nominations? This is the sixth fucking time we talk about it on this show. So we're going to do that. Um, and then also, congrats to us, though. Not for Oscar nominations, but we are both glad nominated. Oh, yes. How strange for both of us. I am nominated for my bit I do on Kimmel, uh, Vertell It Like It Is, which, uh, by the way, I did not name myself. It's sort of shocking to me that I have to keep saying the phrase Vertell It Like It Is when describing what I do. It feels very self-aggrandizing. And you are up for whatever that fucking comic book thing is you did. (laughs) You know I don't understand that shit. (laughs) The Marvel Pride comic book anthology that I wrote on, yes. Yes, very good. Congrats to you. Yeah. Um, Also, I discovered that to be nominated for a GLAAD award, if you're not mainstream media, you submit yourself. And it's also $150. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. I want to know who got it on the ground floor for me. Yeah. Well, well, not you, because that's mainstream media. Oh, I see. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, you air on ABC, baby. Oh, that's so, true. I have prime the, time the, now that you mention it. Yeah, the Glad Awards—they're paying attention. Marvel Comics—they're paying attention. Keep it wasn't nominated for a Glad Award because we are not sending Glad one hundred and fifty dollars, oh, and that's I all see. I'll say about that. <laughs> the culturistas <laughs> over there must have missed us. Yes. Uh, actually, I blame John Lovett. He could, oh, have, sure. he could have sent in $150. What's he doing with that money? Right. No. What a little scamp. Um, 
And then there's like there's truly too much other shit going on in um, the media right now. And unfortunately, we won't get to all of it today. But, you know, Milk Manor, I'm watching it and I love it. Oh, I have not seen it yet other than the clips that are everywhere. And I have to tell you, I want to get that Milf money. They have got it going on over there. <laughs> it is giving Fox. Okay. Yes. It is original TLC recipe. is I mean, I also I've never really been like a TLC um reality show person. Like I've never seen that like my fifteen hundred pound wife yeah. or best friend or whatever show. Like there's some show called that or something, or like little women and I and I ain't talking about Greta. Yeah. Um, you know, like they 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 make a lot Nicki of Minaj verse about little women. Yes. <laughs> Um, but this show is, and everyone obviously has made the 30 Rock joke, you know, because of Milf Island. Right. But I was not prepared for the twist in this show being eight MILFs um, in a villa, um, you know, mingling with eight young men. And then it turns out that the young men are their sons. How does casting do this? How do you cast people who don't know their own mother is involved in the production? I'm just, I, I'm not saying it's um, something is afoot, but I'm just saying these are tricky MILFs. Well, listen, I will say it's not reasonable that some people don't talk to their own mothers every day. True. Um, uh, and, and also one um, one mother-son couple actually does a fourth wall breaking and she was like, I was coming here to shoot a dating show and I knew my son was also in Mexico shooting some other dating competition show, but they didn't assume that it was the same show. Okay. I guess they wouldn't tell them what the title of the show was either, because as we discussed with the mole, at least one of the contestants and probably many of them didn't know what they were signing up for. Like they didn't know it was like a spy related show. So that is kind of feasible. That said, I'm just saying, maybe a text or two could have solved this. Also, the idea that they even knew they were going to call the show Milf Manor while they were filming it, too. That's true. Also, just Milf yeah. Manor. I, I mean, to say those words, it's so, it's so crazy. To live at Milf Manor. Oh, I was raised at Milf Manor. The, my time in the gardens at Milf Manor. It's also basically like a Love Island riff because they... They also they there's no there's no host that I've seen so far in like two episodes. Um, but they do get texts on their phone telling them um when they have to do things with each other or whatever, you know. And um when you, there's there's something fun about Love Island when there's British people going, Oh, I got a text, you know, like that's fun, like it's become part of the lexicon. Um these older women <laughs> Just picking up their phone and going, oh, hey, I've got a text message here. (laughs) And reading it aloud is so funny to me. I just want to be clear. It's very nonchalant. I just want to be clear. There is a, at least what I've seen, a clip from Milf Milf Manor where the MILFs have to, they blindfold themselves and they have to recognize their kids based on groping their chest. Like, they have to pick their son out of a lineup by groping his torso. It is giving yep. the Northman, bitch. This is too much incest <laughs> for me. Speaking There's of which, that would have been a nomination I would have loved to see, Nicole Kidman and the Northman, but anyway. There's one woman who's like, I know my son's shoulders. <laughs> oh, 
God, that's so bone chilling. Uh. Um, the actual highlight of it has been obviously the conversation that the show is trying to have is this faux like, why is it uh, okay for older men to date younger women, but it's like taboo for older women to date younger men? Um, that's what they're pretending this show is like um, attacking. Um, it's a, it's about feminism, as you know. <laughs> sure, um, but. The fun part of it is obviously these women want to fuck younger men. And these are men who are into older women. And it's also funny because it doesn't seem as if they've been explicitly told that there are only going to be like older women in the villa. Mm-hmm. Um, but the women knew that there'd be younger men. That's what they knew that they were looking for. Got it. Um, but you then get what they really think about older women and younger men. Right? Because they see a young, young, older woman flirting with their son, and they're like, oh, no, I don't like that shit anymore. Oh, God. I got, so there's some resentments, et cetera. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know? So that, that is um, part of the fun element of it. Uh, it's, it's gross, <laughs> and it's funny, and I love it. Yeah, I unfortunately will have to watch this. I don't feel good for my spirit, but, you know, I've seen a lot of crazy shit this year. I think it's already seeped out of my pores. I live in Los Angeles. What was I doing with the soul anyway? When's the last time you even watched TLC? You know what? Paige was redoing houses. (laughs) You know I was about to bring up Paige Davis. Yes. (laughs) And Amy Wynn, the rugged carpenter who was so hot. Yeah, I I feel like I loved trading spaces, but what I loved more was extreme makeover. When Ty Pennington took over. And you know yeah, he looks exactly edition. the same right now. Yeah, he's still like glistening umber. He's got that Chuck Woolery glow. <laughs> My favorite part of Extreme Maker Home Edition was how they would um, seemingly get the entire town invested in <laughs> no um, someone kidding. having their home made over. No, it's like truly. like 50 people outside their house. I'm like, I don't even know three of my neighbors. No, and now all these people are interested in my garbage disposal? I'm shocked. <laughs> How many of those houses got robbed? Also, I, I, in my hometown in Lamont, Illinois, they had an Extreme Home Makeover episode, and I want to say I read at the time something about, like, your property value goes all the way up, or uh, plenty of the stuff they install is just for show, really. Like, it's just or, or cheaper than you'd expect. I feel like secretly those shows are kind of a nightmare to those people who get wrapped up in them, but maybe not always. Yeah. It's like re- when they recreated Sydney's house in um, Scream 3. She's yes. just walking through a door, and then she falls. <laughs> right <laughs> into Courtney's no stairwell here. <laughs> right into Courtney's bangs. Yeah. Anyway, let's get our show started. Sure. But um, since I brought it up, Scream, don't like that Ghostface has a gun in that trailer. I don't either. Also, I, I don't know that I need Scream Pig in the city. I'm not sure I need him running around the subways, <laughs> period. Scream Pig in the city. That is always the fifth person on my grinder grid. <laughs> All caps. <laughs> no fats, fans, uh, or weirdos. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got our expansive Oscars conversation this week, and we are joined by the fantastic Michael Yuri, who it feels like should have been on Keep It before. It makes no sense. We're both huge fans of his. I know we both saw Buyer and Seller, in addition to Ugly Betty. Uh, yeah. Smart guy, uh, very theater trained. Love him. Yeah. So uh, Michael Yuri joins us this week as well. 
We have a lot of keep it for you. So we will be right back. Keep It is brought to you by Viore. Tired of boring workout gear? Well, check out Viore. Viore's versatile and comfy products are designed to look great in and outside the gym, whether you're running, training, or even just weekend lounging. Doing nothing, you look great in Viore. The women's performance jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own. Grab one of the new colors before they sell out, and check out the women's daily legging, which features a high-waist, drawstring tie, and upgraded no-slip fit. For guys, there's the men's core short, the most comfy-lined athletic short out there. Am I wearing one right now? Who's to say? And the men's Sunday performance jogger. Plus, Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint and reducing and offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 onwards. I wear this stuff all the time. I love to work out, and I need to be comfortable while I do it. There's something about the cling of the short on the thigh that is essential for me, and Viore provides it. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash keep it. That's V-U-O-R-I.com slash keep it. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash keep it and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town. It was also pretty boring, by the way. To The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and made to compete in a beauty pageant. Amazing to watch, by the way. On each episode of Wondry's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently, The Big Flop looked at The Swan, a competition for women who were hoping to transform their physical appearance. The problem? The women were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then they were ranked by a panel of judges. And that's just after Truman Capote was done with them. Unsurprisingly, it led to trauma for the contestants and terrible reviews. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Each episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shimerda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories and Black truths. Black stories haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and Black as the country we reflect. Stars should never be about us without us. And by us, I mean me and Lewis. <laughs> I'm black, you're tan. <laughs> oh, that's extremely generous of you. <laughs> I look like I belong in Portrait of a Lady, honey. It's like deep white. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
We are continuing our hard-hitting award season coverage on Keep It, as we always do. We're going to get to the facts. We're going to talk about why everyone is basically just... um, has left all abandoned behind and then just like openly asking Paul Mescal to fuck them on the internet now. <laughs> uh, lost their fucking minds. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're getting they always all act like they're pointing out to you. You're the first one to hear from them that he's hot. It's like, I can see it. I saw the movie. Yes. <laughs> I mean, listen, we, we can talk about him and best actor first. There is always, I'm always fascinated by an actor like Paul Mescal, mostly because. There's the sect of film Twitter that will always, you know, talk about um, diversity and, you know, like um, women, et cetera. Um, And, you know, like how we need to be championing them and then like the other people who are snubbed, et cetera. But there's always, without fail, one white man who they will risk it all for. And this year (laughs) is Paul Mescal. Right, right, right. I know exactly the flavor of tweet you're talking about, where they're like livid that Danielle Deadweiler was left out of the conversation, but also Paul Mescal has such a sittable <laughs> face, or whatever they fucking say. Yeah, it's Crush always me like with in the your same thighs. Yes, yes, right. <laughs> we all saw normal people. My God, I will say Danielle Deadweiler. That is the snub that's hanging on me this year. I did not expect her to be mm. left out of the final five, and I know there was. Some conversation about whether it be Anna de Armas who got in for Blonde, whether uh, Michelle Williams. She's would Cuban, still by the way. Did you know that? Okay. Anna de, Armas, Anna de Armas is Cuban getting a big workout on Twitter today. Yeah. <laughs> We're all learning. But like Michelle Williams, there was even a chance she would fall into supporting and that we would rest the uh, placement she wanted away from her and, and nominate her in supporting, uh, even though she specifically said she wanted to go in lead. Um, Yeah, Danielle Deadweiler, I just think that's like a a phenomenal performance that has both tragedy in it and then the triumph of this woman's sort of steely will to present herself to the media in a way that she owned and present her son's death to the media in a way that was spectacular. I thought that movie had a real X factor about it. That said, I also saw people claim that Best Actress this year is the weakest of the four acting nominations, weakest of the four acting categories, and I could not disagree less. Kate Blanchett and Tar, Michelle Yeoh and Everything Everywhere All at Once, Andrea Riseborough, Keep It Guest, sneaking in for Two Leslie with a phenomenal last-minute Hail Mary campaign run by, I guess, Mia Farrow and Gwyneth Paltrow, tweeting their asses <laughs> off and getting people to pay attention. I've never seen anything like that before. Um... And then Anna de Armas and uh, who's the fifth nomination? I'm missing somebody. Oh, and Michelle Williams. So yeah. uh, Michelle Williams would be the one I wish got, fell out in favor of uh, Danielle Deadweiler. But I think that's a very uniform, solid crew. I'd drop Michelle and Anna. I wouldn't call this the weakest. I'd call it the second. I'd call it the third. I'd rank it as the third strongest, though. Got it. I think the weakest um, this go-round is lead actor. Completely. Interesting. Uh, well, I will Brent, say about Brendan Colin- Fraser's nomination. Um, and, you know, I, I'm just sort of like that one to me is just sort of like hanging over everything, you know. And, and when people keep talking about, um, you know, like a great performance in an awful film, um, I would rather watch Blonde again than The Whale. I am happy that The Whale didn't end up in Best Picture, which seemed almost like a sure thing for a minute there. In fact, women talking took that slot and I did not expect that at all. Um, 
Brendan Fraser, I will say I think his performance is an A-. minus. I It's just one of those things where I don't love almost anything about the movie. I would almost compare it to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in that way. Like, the performances mm. really were solid, but then even, like, the production design felt so underthought out. Like... I didn't realize I had expectations of Darren Aronofsky. I wouldn't say I'm a stand of his in any way. The movie felt beneath him. I was so shocked by it. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I'm not um, a Darren Aronofsky stan either by any means. I mean, I mean, I did fucking love Mother, though. But, like, even Mother, right? The attention to detail in that house right. is, is, was, like, immaculate. You know, and like also, it, that's the thing about his mind since Pi and like Requiem for a Dream. It just it seems like his mind is always like working overtime and creating these worlds. And I would say that he did none of that. No, this time. In, in Mother, that is an immaculately um, constructed nightmare. You really feel like you are in a nightmare that you might actually have. I can't say I see that on the silver screen very often. Here, it just felt like. Like even among movies that take place in one room that are that feel like they're adapted from a play, uh, I would even say like One Night in Miami is better than this movie. Not that you know, which has good performances in it, obviously, but I don't think that's a movie we reflect on necessarily. Um, uh, I also think supporting actress is a little weird this year. Not that I don't like Jamie Lee Curtis in uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, but it just felt like. It was about it's the, random as hell. It's the, it's the about the novelty of the role more than it is the performance. Like, did she really give you an Oscar nomination worthy moment in that movie? I just don't remember it. Not at all. And when you're thinking about a, a moment like that, which came from Judd Hirsch in the Fablemans, like that brief appearance was that like you know like two three scenes from him was a highlight of that fucking movie and like sort of changes um the course of the story as well right i mean jamie lee curtis is just sort of there and i feel like it's also i mean listen maybe it was the real housewives of beverly hills that got jamie lee curtis's nomination okay because <laughs> i was that's one of the funniest things i've seen on tv all year uh her hawking her um my hand in home um merch on the show but it's always been baffling and it was baffling but you know sort of understood when she got the golden globe nomination you know just because of um you know she's white and it's the Globes, but for her there. being in the, the the Oscar race here, it's just what are we really doing? Yeah, it seems like it's a nomination because of who she is in the industry and being beloved for so long that this is happening here. I would also say that you could make an argument the same thing is happening for Angela Bassett, except that Angela Bassett was the reason you watched that fucking movie. Like without Chadwick Boseman. Um, Wakanda Forever felt like unmoored a lot to me, except for when you were focused on Angela Bassett. She was that movie. I love the Globe win. I love that she's nominated here. Um, I actually would love for her to win it. It feels uh, like she will. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It feels like she will. I want her to win it. Um, and I say this as a Marvel stan with a Spider Man tattoo. The only thing stressful about this nomination is every fucking tweet that's like, it's the first actor from a Marvel <laughs> film nominated for an Oscar. I'm like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I Enough. will say, though, 
it is interesting to think about that movie, though. That shall be the by, last. Which, by the way, I have. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's enough. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we're not we're not giving Michelle Pfeiffer anything for Quantumania. I know that. Oh, you need to not bring up that word to me. Oh, my God. And that trailer, when she says something like, did you move the quantum beam to the solace or whatever she fucking said? I was angry. Um, uh, no. When I think about Wakanda Forever... I guess it's because the character dies early on. I just don't even really remember that performance that much. It's just, I mean, like, I literally remember Lake Bell a little bit more than I do her with that crazy chase scene she was involved with. You don't remember, my whole family has died. The scream. (laughs) (laughs) Pardon me. I feel like that was in every trailer. Um, but, I mean, that's that's largely what I remember. Uh, but I also really do not think about Black Panther either. You no, know? Right. I mean, Marvel's oh, I was, in a swap era. You brought up Jamie Lee Curtis before, and I really feel like Wakanda Forever is the Halloween kills of Marvel movies. It's this linking mm. movie between something that goes before it and something that goes after it. So if, as you said, the story feels a bit nebulous. You're kind of wandering between urgencies. Like even like half mm-hmm. the movie, I just felt like we were in a lab looking at a big statue that we kept touching and it kept turning red or whatever. You know, it just was lacking. It, it, it was lacking the reason to spend that much money on a movie. I wasn't seeing it. Other than, you know what? I like Denai Guerrero in it quite a bit, as she was great in the first Black Panther, too. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, but speaking, yeah, speaking of Denai, speaking of Angela, speaking of black women doing great, um, it would have been nice to see like Lashana Lynch nominated, too, you know, or Viola nominated. And to that, though, I'm not shocked mostly because of like the Oscars when it comes to nominating black women in general, but also didn't it seem like there was just no fucking push for the woman king at all? It it's did like fa- they spent, fall away. The, mm-hmm. the studio spent all their money on tar. I guess so. Well, also the weird thing about um, the woman king, and I want to say that this might be true for women talking too. I feel like something that holds those movies back in the memories of people who saw them is that they don't end strong. Like the way the woman king ended made it feel like a Disney movie to me. And the way women talking ended was too pat and like tied everything in a bow. Meanwhile, the Fablemans, which I would say is a movie that kind of, you know, it's full of vignettes and some are better than others and whatever. It ends so strongly with that moment with uh, David Lynch as John Ford and the final joke where you see the horizon on the screen, screen change, which references something John Ford just said, really ends with a snap. And I feel like That's maybe a punch. if the, yes, I feel like maybe if those movies ended a little harder, they'd be better recognized here. That said, women talking in best picture is more than I expected. So, yeah. Uh, I'd actually agree with that because I feel like, you know, I mean, not just the construction of a film, but the construction of a film that's going to linger in people's minds for a while. Um, I love The Woman King. I absolutely loved it. Um, but I did feel like when the ending happened, it just it I felt like the ending kept dragging on. Because at a certain point, it ended strong. And then there was sort of like the coda at the end, and then they're mm-hmm. dancing together. I'm just like, a movie like that about war, like, it, need, it needs to end with a gut punch for me, you know? And women talking, you know, they talked. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now they're done talking. Women done talking. Um, That's the sequel. But even speaking of those films, and, you know, Sarah Polly and um, Gina Prince, by the way, 
I think it may be time to have the conversation about best directress. You want, yeah, you want to just open that up entirely? I mean, listen, we have had, you, you can correct me here, it's, it's between seven or nine um, women who've ever been nominated for Best Director. It's lingering somewhere around there. Yeah, you've got Lena Vertmuller, you've got Sofia Coppola, you've got Jane Campion, you've got Emerald Fennell, Greta Gerwig, Chloe Zhao, yeah. And Chloe Zhao, and how many of what Chloe Zhao's won? And, um, oh, just one, yes. Just one, and she uh, won Jane Campion? Too. And Jane Campion won last year for Power of the Dog. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like if this were actor categories and only, and this is my problem with the idea of making genderless categories for actor, I think you would have a situation where you would not have that many fucking women nominated. But I don't you would know about get that. Kate Blanchett. You'd get like a, you get like the Kates, you get Meryl, you'd get a moment like an Andrea Riseborough, um, maybe like an Angela this year. But I feel like you know, like people like Carrie Condon, Stephanie Sue, you know, like um, the, Anna de Armas, like in a genderless like year or something, like they're not getting fucking nominations. You know, I, just, I think my problem with genderless categories is I just think there are too few winners. Like that would basically yeah. take it down to two acting wins, and I just don't think that's exciting. It, it, it then it, it's just you don't want to limit the amount of winners. I think you know, I, yeah. I mean, I, you don't want the Grammys problem either, where you have like way too many categories, and then it almost you just kind of scratch your head when you realize what you just won or whatever. But four acting wins is just enough to keep the kind of gilded patina of the Oscars going, I think. So maintaining that four, I think, is important for the ceremony. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm just thinking, like, how do you fix best director? One thing I keep thinking of is the fact that we have so many, we've expanded the best picture, the number of nominations. Maybe we need an expansion of best director because, you know, it's, it's not like there, there are four acting categories, you know? And then you have one directing category, and it's, well, maybe we should be nominating more directors. Would some of these women have gotten in if it was expanded, or would more men have gotten in, you know? Or should we have best director for, you know, discuss something like the Globes, where, like, you're separating them into, you know, best director of a comedy or best director of a drama, you know? Like, but there's something I feel like that needs to change here. You can't have this conversation every fucking year. Every time I go to the Wikipedia and I see the list of best pictures, which is now up to 10, and then the best director list, which is up to five, it's a very strange dialogue occurring there because it almost always feels like the best director category always, always, almost always feels like an indictment of what gets nominated for best picture. I'm like, oh, here's the real best five, you know, right. even though it's possible that, you know, director doesn't get nominated and it does win. We do have things like Argo, but at the same time, it does feel like Best Director is the real Best Picture nominations in a way. Yeah. Best Picture always feels like here are a collection of the best films and also like what audiences want to see and what's going to get people tuning into the Oscars and what people were talking about. I completely understand that for Top Gun. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think Top Gun necessarily needs a Best Director nomination, but a Best Picture nomination absolutely is one of my favorite fucking films of the year. Yeah, I I feel like another thing I'm weighing when I when I compare those two categories is 
you see in Best Picture what is there for variety's sake. And there should be variety in Best Picture, but that's not the same thing as nominating something because it's the best either, you know? Yeah. I mean, Avatar The Way of the Water... I haven't seen it yet, so I'm not going to drag this I can't believe you have not seen it. That really surprises me. (laughs) I have not seen the movie yet because I'm specifically waiting to see it with a friend of mine. And unfortunately, when I got back into town, there were so many other movies that we had to see instead of Avatar because he's already seen it. Um, And I just haven't felt the push to go and see Avatar myself and sit there for three hours, you know? I did feel that for Babylon, which I was shocked, got no nominations. I know it got it got a couple, but nothing like huge. That's nothing correct. major. Yeah. Speaking of snubs I did not expect, um, Brian Tyree Henry getting in for Causeway, a movie in which he is lovely. It's a very uh lived-in, real-seeming, grounded movie and performance from him. I really thought we would be looking at Eddie Redmayne and The Good Nurse, which I watched the other day. I did not mm-hmm. realize it's like this true crime story that is sort of styled as a hospital set horror movie. But Eddie Redmayne in this movie is so self-contained throughout it, not giving anything away as he should about his character because mm-hmm. the reveal comes at the end. He has one moment where he blows up and that's the only like quote unquote big acting scene there is what were we doing almost putting him in the best supporting actor conversation i'm so glad we course corrected that well you know i don't see it for her (laughs) (laughs) i have to say something about the good nurse by the way so the, the the good nurse is jessica chastain last year's best actress winner and at the end of the movie all i will say is that the final title card says she is still a good nurse (laughs) <laughs> wait is this based she, on a true story yes she is still a good nurse is the update we get don't tell me what to think about the nurse don't tell me what to think about the nurse <laughs> that's like a bad title card at the end of a real housewives season where they update you at the final party or what everyone's been doing since they've been filming it's like and jessica chastain is still a good nurse there's nothing else to, there's nothing else to say about her <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, oh, do we want to um, talk about best original song really quickly? Oh uh, yeah. Okay, I just watched. Uh, did you have you seen RRR yet? I have not seen RRR yet because I'm waiting to see it in a huge theater, and I was sick the night that it was playing at the um, Chinese theater. I watched it at home, unfortunately. Okay, this movie is full of zeal, and that has a hundred different definitions. The zeal in violence, the zeal of musicals, the zeal of romance, uh, lots of varieties of exuberance happening in this movie. This song that is performed, Natu Natu, which is nominated against among the weakest competition you'll ever see in this category. I mean, Rihanna with the sleepy song, Lady Gaga with the other sleepy song, Diane Warren, who again is nominated for the sixth year in a row. She has been nominated seven of the past eight years when she also gets the Lifetime Achievement Award this year. Um, And also David Byrne and Mitski nominated. Okay, I can see that for that movie. But anyway, this performance is the sleigh of the year. Everybody is giving it. It's the most athletic, pulsing, um, can't take your eyes off of it scene of the year. I think it's a movie where you can think a lot about it. Like some scenes are a little bit more gratuitously, uh, just a bit much than they need to be. But that scene is just a pure joy. And I feel like that is the runaway win of the year. 
can I tell you, um, this is so fucking random, but looking at the best original song list, and you know, like, hold my hand, Lady Gaga, but right in, right before it is the Diane Warren song, which is named Applause. And for a split <laughs> second, I was like, did Gaga get nominated for Applause? <laughs> <laughs> um, the art pop stands leaking into the Academy, finally. <laughs> Breaking down the doors. Uh, that is funny. Which also, side note, I wanted to ask you, is Bloody Mary um, eligible for a Grammy now that it's been released as a single years oh, later? I would assume not. I feel like they have to write new rules for that sort of thing. Because that's kind of insane to me that the song is playing on the radio now and fully been released as a single years after that album came out. Yeah, I feel like we're going to see more things like that in the future because people just, you know, TikTok is about some child discovered some song that we all listened to 20 times 10 years ago, and now we all have to listen to it again. It just feels like that's likely to occur now. I, man, hold my hand. I just can't get behind it, guys. I don't know what we were thinking. Again, it seems like she sort of avoided it's great live, putting instruments okay? in. Oh, all right. All right. It's fucking great live. I I will say that, you know, I normally leave before concert's over so I can get the fuck out of there, but hold my hand. She did it. Like and, me, and I felt moved. I felt I felt I felt more stirred than I did watching it. Uh sorry, I felt more stirred listening to it in the concert than I did watching the film, which I guess maybe sort of like excludes it from winning, you know, because it's if it's better performed live and I felt absolutely nothing while it played in the movie, then it d- doesn't work as a original song, you know? Right, mo- right, For right. a movie. Uh, to me, that song reminds me of the lesser parts of the A Star Is Born soundtrack, which is really mm. goopy balladry. I mean, it's what people think of Diane Warren is occurring in the latter stages of that album. If we're talking about any of our lasting, you know, sort of thoughts about these nominations or takeaways, there's a lot of conversation around Paul Mescal, yes. But I am really excited for Barry Keoghan getting nominated. I loved him in this movie. I thought that he and Carrie were the best parts, which is which is wild when Colin Farrell's giving such an amazing um, performance and Brendan Gleeson's giving such an amazing performance. And um, I know that some people are like back and forth on Banshees, but I love that film. It was one of my favorites of the year. And I would go between that or uh, go between that or Triangle of Sadness for um best picture because I know that Top Gun is not gonna win, even though I'd want it to. Triangle of Sadness is a movie that I would get this divide into three parts and i like the second part the best when the ship is going awry and it, it, that's the mm-hmm. best directed part of the movie too and i think the reason uh the movie got a directing nomination but um yes barry keoghan every once in a while you get a new actor who has a completely um not just unique thing but strange thing like you're looking at them and being like what is it about this person that is so transfixing and has hidden depth or is um enigmatic and he, you know, really is one of these people. I would compare it maybe to like an Adam Driver or, um, mm-hmm. you know, or like Mia Goth right now. Just somebody have some people have a quality about them where it's just not contrived and it's full and uh, uh, full of heart or full of just an enigma. He's an enigmatic person and he really channels it into a very sensitive performance. His scene with Carrie, where he uh, asks her out and she sort of declines with some dignity. 
and he sort of leaves with some dignity, but it's sad. It's just a very specific, awesome scene in that movie. And they're doing so much in that scene, too, because the literal banshee is across yes. uh, the water from them, staring at them. So there's that going on as well. And uh, honestly, shout out to this pairing of Barry and Colin Farrell, too, from kill- them both being in Killing of a Sacred Deer to them being right. in this. Like, I, I just want to keep seeing them in movies together. That movie, I walked out of it and it felt like someone like slapped me on the side of the head or something. I'm like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel concussed by a drama. Ugh, I walked out of that movie, sat in my car, and then Nicole Kidman gave me a hand job. <laughs> she was really working for that nomination that year. Yeah. I will say one thing that was really interesting to me was, uh, first of all, congrats to Ryan Johnson for the Glass Onion adapted screenplay nomination. But I forgot that I guess a sequel is technically an adapted screenplay. That's a, a category that has some of the weirder rules that people uh, underestimate. Yeah, if there's a movie that preceded it, then it becomes adapted because he was nominated before in original screenplay. Yeah. So, um, Ryan Johnson, you will always get a screenplay nomination. <laughs> but, you know, let's give him something more. He's a great director, too. That's I true. Thought that That's movie true. Was fu- I thought that movie was fun. And... Um, honestly, like, you know, like if it had been kept in cinemas longer, maybe we'd be having a different conversation about it because I absolutely thought that the public perception of that film changed from cinema to when it was on Netflix and people were sort of half watching it at home. And it's definitely my favorite Janelle Monet performance. Uh, I've liked her previously, you know, she's great in Hidden Figures, Moonlight, she did give us yeah. that antebellum movie, which I'm still <laughs> scratching my head about. But in this movie, he gave her like a true showcase and she lived up to it. You know, something happens in the middle of that movie and you suddenly realize, oh, you're getting a much different Janelle Monet than you expected. Yeah, she's fantastic in that movie. But again, I feel like the conversation dropped out about her even giving a nomination because once that movie hit Netflix, I feel like all of a sudden there was this influx of people saying they didn't like the movie. And I'm wondering if that was just because people were just sitting at home watching it, you know, because everyone I know who saw that movie in theaters had a great time, even if they didn't think it was better than Knives Out. But that also might be, you know, like a sample of just people going wanting to see the movie and going out to see it in theaters because and that being the audience for it and then the mass audience for it um, on Netflix, maybe not loving it. But it was a that's a weird sort of. Um, one of those movies that was high for a second and then dropped out. All I know is the next movie I will be seeing will be the animated short My Year of Dicks, which was a thrill to watch Riz Ahmed read out loud. I have no idea if he knew he would be reading the words My Year of Dicks, but <laughs> Godspeed to all of us because it was awesome. Uh, no, that was him announcing the best director category. <laughs> oh my God. Now you're writing for the Oscars. <laughs> Step down, bitch. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> when I hear that joke come from Jimmy Kimmel's lips, <laughs> <laughs> you're calling the WGA. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. Well, if we didn't completely exhaust everything about the Oscars, please keep in mind that we still have a very long time before this award ceremony. Two so months. we will continue yeah. to talk about them. Uh, so we will be right back with Michael Yuri.
Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Our guest today is a multi-hyphenate talent. He's an actor, producer, director. He's a gay icon. And yes, we count gay icon as a talent. And you can catch him next on the cathartically earnest new series, Shrinking, on Apple TV, where he stars with Harrison Ford. And you know we will be asking about that. Please welcome to Keep It, Michael Yuri. I cannot believe it's taking you this long to be on the show with us. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I have wanted to. I, I, I'm, I'm so glad I'm finally doing it. I love you guys. That is honestly too flattering to us. I can think of several things we don't deserve, and one of them is that. So that's nice of you, Michael. Okay, so starting on shrinking, I I was just thinking about this. I think it's actually, it's rare that a celebrity to me is intimidating. I can think of a couple. (laughs) Glenda Jackson, if I met her, I'm absolutely peeing my pants. You know, there's a few people, like like even someone like Megan Fox, I think has an intimidating thing about her. Harrison Ford, meanwhile, is a whole different level of intimidation. And the reason I think mostly is he has been dogged by the most fervent fans who have ever existed for anything. And I just can't imagine what that does to a person. What was it like, first of all, just meeting this person and then, of course, getting to work with him on this show? Well, the first meeting was at our table read. We did a table read for the first episode. And 
we met like right before we were all sort of gathered together. The cast was sort of gathered together. Bill Lawrence made this really great speech to just us before we went in and read the read the script for um, the Apple execs. And you know, he was like, you know, he's 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 not a very large person, but of course he looms so large. And like there was a point where we were all kind of gathered and he wasn't there yet. And, and, and I was like, is he coming? Is he coming? Is he here? Is he here? Is he coming? <laughs> and then he kind of came around and we all walked over together and and he was just one of us. I mean, it was like, we're just like a, a company of actors. And and then of course you go in and we're reading for this big group of people and every sentence out of his mouth gets a massive laugh because it's him and he's good in it. He's so good in it. But then the sweetest part was when we left, we sort of were ushered out of the room and we gathered again right outside the room. And we were all, as you know, like actors do after a performance, we were all like, wasn't that great? Wasn't that great? How was, wasn't that great? It was so fun. You were amazing. No, you were amazing. And he was just like the rest of us. He, he was like a kid. He was like, that was so fun. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that exciting? And that was when I, that was like the first moment I realized, oh, he's, he just loves acting. And he loves working. And, you know, he had come right from Indiana Jones 10 or whatever, and he was going right into the... (laughs) He's always doing something. and He loves the work. He loves... And then my first day working with him, because so then like cut to a month, it was like another month before I actually worked with him. And I would see him on set riding his bike and we would, you know, like wave and see each other in the makeup trailer. But I didn't actually have a scene with him for like another month. And... The first day, it was just me and him in a scene, and um, we walked into blocking rehearsal, and he had he was like, oh, I think I should be over here. You know, he immediately had some ideas, but he really wanted to know what the director thought. And then after we blocked it, before they they sent us away to let the crew set up, he said, no, wait, 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 wait. is that okay for you? And he like asked me if I was good with everything, and I was like, yeah, this is great. I love I love all this, and and um. <laughs> And I was like, you know, I was like, he's done hundreds and hundreds of scenes and he might not even remember this one. I I will. I'll never forget this scene, but he treats it like every other scene. It's just, it's an, it's another scene and everything's new. And he talked, we talked a little bit about, cause you know, I'm in, I do a lot of theater and, um, and his wife was doing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, while we were doing Uh, this. Yes. Right. Which I went to see and she was terrific. And so we talked about it and, um, and, uh, I was like, have you ever done theater? Have you ever wanted to do theater? And he was like, no, that's not for me because, because he doesn't like doing the same thing over and over again. And you really felt that doing a scene with him, everything was new. It was always a new problem. Uh, it wasn't like, okay, we, we, you know, this is how we do a scene like this. It was always a new scene. Um, and I think that's, what's kept him good all these years. And I think he's better than ever. It's nice to know that he has a whimsy about him. I just wouldn't have guessed, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> also, by the way, if there's a biopic, I actually would, wouldn't mind you doing your Harrison Ford impression <laughs> as Harrison Ford. I wouldn't mind it. <laughs> I, I don't think you escape the world um, with, a, with no whimsy after surviving, first of all, how many plane crashes has that man survived? <laughs> no, I feel right. like Harrison Ford is indestructible at this point. I mean, it's so... I mean, would also even saying that too, like having so many dogged fans, Lewis, before, like he's done yeah. everything, like Blade Runner, Star Wars, Indiana Jones. I was like, what was like the one thing that you were like, I really want to talk to Harrison Ford about this movie when you met him? And like, and did you get to? Yes, and I, I did get to. It was Working Girl. 
Of, oh, of course you said uh, that. Yes. You may stay on Keep It. You may stay here. Yes. I, I had just read the Mike Nichols biography that Mark Harris wrote. Which Fabulous. Is so yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's book. And it's just so much great juicy stuff in there. And he loved Harrison. And so I was, you know, of course, I, I mean, I, I, I wanted to talk about all of it. I wanted to talk about Blade Runner and Indiana Jones and Star Wars because those movies are all so, you know, I mean, I had, I know, I know every word of those movies, but, um, but I also think he's so good. And I mean, he's like the fugitive and all of those Tom Clancy books and, and, and working girl. I mean, that was the movie, you know, that was one of the movies that made me gay, you know, and I got to tell him like, this movie's gay canon. Like, this is a movie that we all, like, it's like, required viewing for all of us. And he was like, really? Why? And and, and so, we, like, we really get into it and talk about, like, Nichols and, and exp- I explained to him why that movie was, and I was like, it's, you know, Melanie Griffith is like, it's like every great, you know, gay female icon. She's like what we all, you know, we, 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 we get these broken little beautiful birds and we repair them and then we send them out into the world and she's that and she's this incredible and and then there's Joan Cusack I mean I feel like that movie kind of invented gay with Joan Cusack and certainly uh, and I was like and they're all kind of like drag queens too so Gwenny Weaver's kind of like an evil drag queen and he's like oh yeah that's good he cited the fishbowl, uh, you know, the, the the scene where his his fishbowl office, you know, when he goes into his office, which is like a all glass, and he's on the mm. phone. He's been up all night, and he's he's t- takes off his shirt. And he's like he takes off his shirt, and he like he like w- washes his armpits. He gives himself a horse bath right in the office, and then he he's on the phone, and he looks, and all of the secretaries are lined up watching him, <laughs> and he sees them, and they applaud, and he kind of like eh, yeah, you know, he sort of gives him a a, a, a bow. <laughs> I was like, what is the gayest thing in, 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 in the, in the 1980s? Um, and you're so hot. I was like, you're so hot in that movie. You're so sweet in that movie. You're what uh, every, every woman and man want from a man is, is that guy, a rich, handsome, sweet man. And, and you're it. So like, that was the one that I was like the most, I figured that that's my in and I really love it. And he is so wonderful and underrated in that movie. And, uh, and it was Mike Nichols. I mean, you know, getting to talk to him about Mike Nichols, he made two movies with Mike Nichols and hearing about that was like, you know, it's just acting, acting candy. Also, mm. that's an interesting movie because he's sort of like fourth build in it and it's advanced in his career. He was his full after Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's after Blade Runner, et cetera, Star Wars, obviously. So for him to take that role seems kind of surprising, but he is so good at it. Also, just I mean, we don't have too many movies where it's about women wearing trench coats and sneakers on the ferry. You know, it's just something about that really sets us off, you know. Yeah. Oh, the opening of that in that Carly Simon song. Oh, it's just so mm. Such a good movie. Oh, that song. Oh, Let the River Run. One of the great wins. Yeah. Uh, after my first, I I, I think I talk, we talked about that on my first day with him or maybe my second day with him. But after we'd been doing the scene for a little while, you know, they were moving the camera and I said something like, um, you know, you're very good at this. I sort of like took him aside. <laughs> I'm very good at this. And he goes, you thought I was just a pretty face. <laughs> oh fuck yes oh my god i have tears in my eyes that's so I funny know. he's so cute he's really really and he loves getting laughs it's funny because i would occasionally see people making conversation with him and a go-to for them was um 
What's it like doing comedy? You know, it must be so fun to do comedy for you. And I always thought those people were being silly because that's, he is Han Solo. Han Solo totally. is funny. That's a comedy. Indiana Jones is a comedy. And like this guy, we've, we all have seen him be hilarious for our entire lives. Of course he's going to be good at comedy. Of course he's going to be good at this. Witness is a comedy to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, the Amish? They're so silly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so something that I've always thought is uh, interesting about you is you're a Juilliard grad. And I always think about gay actors at Juilliard where that must be, I mean, like, everyone around you must be gay. It must feel like you 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 come up with gay colleagues in a way that I think is rare for, like, somebody going through a college experience. Do you have lots of fond memories of that time? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, we had gay teachers, uh, gay, gay, uh, gay upperclassmen, um, and lots, there was lots of making out. Um, <laughs> and, it was, and, you know, so, and, and everybody's like, so, so cute and, and in great shape. And so, I mean, I remember seeing bodies, you know, well-toned bodies for the first time and, and, um, and, and people playing, and and we could like of course do gay scenes scenes from gay plays and um and then also watching how gay actors navigated playing not gay and what what happens when you get into the real world and like what does that mean for you and uh, you know i graduated in two it's almost 20 years now since i graduated and there's a bunch of people from my class who aren't doing it anymore a bunch of people from the time i was there who aren't doing it anymore because you know in part because there was nothing for them right away um, and I, I, sometimes I look back and I think, gosh, those people now would be working all the time. Um, but because it's like, if you don't get your foot in the door right away, it's, it's really complicated, but yeah, I mean, Lee Pace was two years ahead of me and was just as hot then as he is now <laughs> and was so good in school. And, um, and, I remember thinking like he 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 would do these incredible um masculine things, but he was also did this wonderful Richard the Second um in his uh fourth year, I think, where you know, Richard the Second is kind of the vain king. And I was like, oh my God, look at what you can do. Look, you can be fabulous in Shakespeare. Um and then and then and then to and then so to watch his trajectory um and watch the amazing things that he's done and also you know i mean there's other like other amazing oscar isaac was there when i was there jessica chastain was in my class i was just gonna say jessica chastain right yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and um all these all the other other amazing actors that you might not know like francois batiste uh who just did uh raising the sun at the public or jeff beale who was in my class who's this brilliant theater actor who is, is always doing amazing things in new york um yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of great um queer uh people to look up to in those in those years and um i mean my class was filled with queer people too and and we were all figuring it out you know sleeping with each other sleeping with women sleeping you know like we were all luke mcfarland's in my class was in my class um and i remember like you know i remember us figuring out things together and we never we never we never did anything um because <laughs> uh, i don't go for muscles um, <laughs> right. It's beneath you, really. It's beneath you. Yeah. <laughs> but I loved him so much. And then we got to do that Christmas movie together. We got to be in Single All the Way. 
and we hadn't worked together since Juilliard and we hadn't spent, we, I mean, we, we were always very fond of each other and we'd kept in touch over the years, but you know, like getting back together with him and to do a Christmas movie, which he'd done like 12 of. And this one was his first gay one. It was my first Christmas movie and Netflix's first gay Christmas movie. And, and falling in love with each other on screen was just so like, it was like, you know, we were kids again. It was really cool. Well, what's interesting too about Luke McFarlane is that, you know, like, so you were both in the same class together. Uh, and then um, you both went on to be in ABC series that started the same year, uh, him and brothers and sisters. And then you in ugly Betty, of course, um, what was that like having that, you know, like, Obviously, you talk about, you know, like the lack of gay roles, especially then. What was it like getting a role that was like gay? It seems like it was tailor made to sort of like be you and put you on the map. Yeah, getting that role. And and like. I was only supposed to be in the pilot of Ugly Betty. And um, the, 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 the truth is Vanessa Williams is the reason that I got to stay because she loved me. I played her assistant and she was into mm. what I was doing. And so she kept like including me in things during the pilot that she didn't have to do. You know, like she could have very, I can think of a lot of divas who would have been like, get that queen away from me. Um, this is my shot. But she <laughs> would like scoot me closer. She would like to be like, what are you doing? I, I, I want to do that too. Let's do that together. Um, Brilliant, brilliant, um, and and extremely generous, and um, so that so then by the end of the pilot shoot, they were like, "Let's put that guy in the in the in the in the picture with all the cast," and then I was in the show, and and so I, in a lot of ways, there was very little um, there was very little to the character um, originally, and once they cast me, they were able to really re so like it was kind of tailor made for me. Um, because th there wasn't a lot planned for it for him, and I and I remember when when I auditioned for Ugly Betty, the, you know, I don't know what they look like now because I don't see breakdowns so much anymore. But I used to get all the breakdowns of the ca casting breakdowns, and for mm -hmm. pilots, you know, for TV pilots, they have to put everything in there, and so like you you read a description of a character. And by the, you know, there's so many things. They're looking for, like, the most specific thing. That's why the same actors get cast all the time in pilots is because, you know, they fit all the things that you need in a, in a TV character. And but and it, it, invariably, I would read a, b a breakdown of a character. And at some point, before I got to the end, I was out. Like, I would be like, well, no, I'm not that. It would be like this. And I'm, like, I'm not that. I'm that. And I'm that. And he's got brown hair. And he's got hazel eyes. And he's he's 5'11". And he's straight. Okay, well, I'm not going to get that part. <laughs> you know, I would always end up that way. And the breakdown for Mark on Ugly Betty was simply bitchy gay assistant. That was it. <laughs> That's all it said. And I was like, well, I'm that. I could definitely do that. Um, so, so I think the fact that it was that they had so little in mind, um, all they wanted, all they needed was a bitchy gay guy. Um, they were able to like flush it out with me in their heads. And that's so great. It's such a luxury. They did that on shrinking too. They really like, they really used the actors they had to finish out the characters. Um, and, and I, I think that's, that's a really cool thing about TV. Um, that, that it becomes so organic. And that's why it's like TV shows are always get better as they go on or usually get better as they go on. I guess sometimes they, they, they go down, but um, but yeah, doing Ugly Betty at the same time as Brothers and Sisters was such a trip 
because we were we were only a few years out of school. And so and we had both just moved to L.A. So we actually were hanging out a lot then. And it was and and it was like back then nobody was out. So here we were playing queer characters. And I think Luke came out. Maybe we came out around the same time or he came out before me. I can't remember. But like it was like Ellen was out. You know, Rupert Everett was out. And then Neil Patrick Harris kind of got outed around that time. And, and like, it was, it was like not a thing. I mean, I was being, I was being told you can do this one, but no more, you know, like you can't do any more gay characters. And, um, you know, and it was like, you can be out if you want, but we'd better probably be better not to talk about it. And, and I did end up like coming out publicly. I mean, everybody knew, but, um, nobody was surprised, but I came out publicly (laughs) between season two and uh, two and three, maybe, it just was like, it got to a point where I was like, this is so stupid. I, the, the reason I kept like, like the reasoning kept being, you know, you can't do this. You can't come out because then you'll be pigeonholed as gay and you can do this one gay character, but no more. And I was like, that's so, that's so dumb. And I think I was cast in a play, this great play called The Temperamentals. And it was like, couldn't have been more different than Ugly Betty. And, uh, but it, it was a gay guy and he was also in fashion. And I was like, well, this is proof that, that, that I'm not going to, you know, that I don't have to be pigeonholed. There's another role that like has some of the same attributes and it's totally different. It's a different medium and it's a different style. And it's like all these a different genre. And I was like, it's just, this is stupid. I'm not going to, th- th- and the truth is like, looking back, I'm quite sure if I had said no, I mean, obviously if I'd said no to gay roles after Ugly Betty, I wouldn't be on this podcast. I wouldn't be doing anything. I mean, I, you know, you wouldn't even know who I was. Speaking of great gay roles, though, we must talk about your performance in Buyer and Seller, which if people haven't seen it, it's an imagining of what goes on in the mall Barbara Streisand has under her house that she has fashioned herself to make it look like, you know, a shopping area she would have grown up around, for example. And anyway, in this play, a one-person play, um, your character um, is hired to work down there. And every once in a while, like once in a great while, Barbara comes downstairs to say hi, and eventually a relationship is forged. When I saw this, and I saw it at the Taper, I believe, in um, yeah. L.A., Yeah, one of the most fabulous stage performances I've ever seen. The casting, I mean, was so dynamite. But also, I just want to talk about, like, when you when I watched you in that performance, it's just the rare thing of it feels like he had to have written it for you, but he didn't. And I wonder how often you get that feeling of reading something and thinking this was actually for me, Michael Urey. Oh wow, that's a great question. Because what's crazy is um, we Jonathan Tolans who wrote it and I had been had been we met kind of I think we knew each other, but we we really got to know each other doing this sitcom Partners from the Will and Grace guys, Max ah, yes. and Cohan, mm-hmm. and. Um, and it was while we were doing that, that he slipped me the script and he was like, this is, I wrote this for Jesse Tyler Ferguson, but I think you could be good at it. Mm. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll read it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> take um, that. Yeah. <laughs> and I read it and I was like, well, this is, this is really funny. This is really interesting. And, um, and then partners got canceled and, um, modern family didn't. And so suddenly like, we were, I was available, John was available and um, the Rattlestick Theater had something fall out and they were available. So this is like weeks after we finished Partners, suddenly there's an opportunity to do the play. So John was like, let me just make sure Jesse's okay with this um, and maybe we can do this play 
off off Broadway. And um, Jesse was very graciously said, yeah, go for it, make the play. And um, and so then it was real. And I was, I was on a flight. I can't remember why, but I was on a flight and it was like, okay, now I have to commit or not. And I, I don't usually do this. I don't always, I don't always do this, but I was, I was just like, this is a huge undertaking. And, you know, like it would take up, you know, like I'm coming off of a TV show. I could either try to get back on another TV show or just like say, screw that. I'm going to do this play off, off Broadway that may or may not be any good. And I, I, and we were on a flight and I said, Hey Ryan, to my partner, Hey Ryan, we just look at this and tell me if I should do it. And he read like half a page and said, yeah, you have to do this. And, and so like immediately he was like, this is absolutely, this is absolutely you. And this is hilarious and it's completely original and you got to do it. And so <clears throat> thank you for saying, it seems like it was written for me um, because it wasn't, as you know, and, um, uh, and it was, and, and even though it was tailored to me, um, it, 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 it was, it was, you know, I had to, it was something I, I had to interpret. And I didn't really know bar- much about Barbara Streisand at the time. I know everything now, but I didn't know a lot. <laughs> and, um, and I liked John's writing. I knew John's plays. I knew some of John's plays. So I, I really liked John's writing. And, and and he did go in there and like tinker things for me. But um, but that was like just sort of this, mat- that piece is so good. It's such a good piece of writing. and um, And I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it justice. So I, we worked so hard and, and I did it for so long. I did like 600 performances of it or something. And um, I love it. I, I'm and so, I'm so, I'm so proud of it and, and, and grateful too. I think it was like, it also like, you know, I had done theater before that I'd done, I had gotten to do a bunch of cool theater before that, but it, it kind of, I think it gave, it made people think, I don't know. There was something about it that after I did that, it was there was something like reliable about it like like knowing that i did that play and did it for such a long time made people think oh well we can rely on him not just that he's mm. you know in tv like in tv and film you got to be in the right place at the right time and perfect for the role and in theater it's it, there's more of like a journeyman um quality to to the work and i think that that play um more than anything gave me credibility in the theater, um, which I'm really grateful for. Gave you that Judith light, as we call it. Yes. <laughs> Shining down on you. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's more one um, person show um, credits than Anna DeVere Smith, okay? I mean, her that's show right. didn't last yes. that long. Pulitzer okay? nominee, yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, also speaking of theater, I was like, I also got to see you opposite a friend of mine, DeVere Rogers, oh. in Chicken and Biscuits. Uh, and that, like, I mean... You were a highlight of that show. I mean, I think you knew that. Like, the audience was cracking up at you at that show, uh, which is which is a feat because, like, you were on stage with, like, Norm Lewis. Yeah. And Cleo King and DeVere. And, yeah. So, like, I, like, everybody in that show is fucking funny and, like, an icon. So, And then some amazing newcomers, like uh, Anya Mizell, who I uh, did, who played the young, the young girl. The, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, she's a genius. And I had a big scene with her uh, in the second half of the play. And that was thrilling, doing that scene with her, where people would just laugh and we would just have to wait because it was so funny. Um, I love that play so much. That is the second most produced play in America this year. After wow. We, yeah. Okay. That is fucking crazy. Yeah. 
I know that yeah. is crazy, and and it's a it's not a small cast. It's you know it's a pretty big cast, you know, for these t- these lean times in 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 theater finance. Um, that was a real that was really cool to do that play. It was we had the youngest, um, the 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 youngest director I think in Broadway history, or the youngest black director in Broadway history. I can't remember. Um, in Jalen Levinson, who was totally brilliant um and then we had like 30 broadway debuts between cast and crew um it was uh and and the the, the audiences were phenomenal we we ended up getting cut short because of covid which sucked um but but the fact that it's the second most produced play in america to me feels like the hit and it, it's what makes it a hit and and um and it, I, it's great it's being done all over the place and um and and i and Devere, how do you know Devere? He's so brilliant. I met Devere out in LA um, oh. through other friends. And so like, um, I it's the last time. I think the last time I saw Devere was when we had a party at a friend's house for um, to listen to all of Renaissance. Oh, that's a fun yeah. party. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so adore Devere. And like you two were so great on oh. stage together. So, yeah. Before we let you go, one last question, which is, so you've talked about doing all this theater. Is there one classic role in theater you've not gotten to play that we wouldn't maybe intuitively connect you with, but you'd still love to play in some fashion sometime in the future? Well, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, like, there's like Tom and the Glass Menagerie, which I guess isn't a stretch. I can see you exactly in that role. I can see it. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I would really like to do that someday. Um, I actually auditioned for it once when Sally Field was doing it and not, not when she did it on Broadway, but she did it once before. And that was very, I didn't get it, but it was very exciting to like imagine her and like, you know, work with a director thinking about her, but, um, you know, like a role that I'd like to play. That's like a stretch that, uh, that I might have to fight for, you know, like, um, I would say like Prince Hal in mm, Henry. The- okay. Yeah, like uh, like one of those fire fiery heroic kind of roles. Um, I got to p- play Hamlet, which is pretty awesome. But that's there's that's you know that makes more sense I think than than like a Prince Hal or a, or you know playing um, like Macbeth. That would be really fun too. I'm talking about the character, not the play, because I know it's not good to say the play um, <laughs> in the Scottish play. Um, I love doing Shakespeare. So I think, you know, playing one of those like, you know, guys who like fights and kills people and screams and yells. And I, I'd really like to, to do something like that. Um, yeah. I, there's also like, you know, there's a part of me that would really like to play one of those super macho guys in a, in a, in an Arthur Miller play, like, like a view from the bridge or, or, you know, one of those, or the crucible just to like you know I, I, there's the, I, I feel like i've got that in me i mean nobody nobody like you know nobody nobody lets me do stuff like that but i i i would like to i feel like there's um there's something to that uh and i will say the thing that i i, I always wanted to do that i didn't think i would ever get to do and that was i was sort of surprised by when i when we did that christmas movie was playing the leading man in a rom-com um, cause that was kind of like when I first got into the business, that's what I really wanted was to be like, you know, Tom Hanks and, um, or like Billy Crystal and when Harry met Sally, like that's what I wanted to do. And then very quickly I was like, oh, well, I can't do that because I'm queer. And, um, and I, and it wasn't until we, and I really like, let it go. I like, like put it out of my mind and, and changed gears. 
And it was, it was, it wasn't until we were, it wasn't really even until I saw the movie that I was like, I did it. Wait a minute. I did it. I got to play. I got to play the guy with the problem and the guy who falls in love. I got to play all those fun love scenes. Uh, that was cool. So like maybe, maybe the, 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 you know, the Prince Hal will come my way in a, in a way that I don't even realize it. Or maybe you will get to star in Working Queer. Come on. Do I have to write it myself? Ugh. That's good. Yeah. Sells right in the room. Please. Come on. That's so yeah, good. That, I, I'd watch it. Congrats, Lewis. You don't seem happy about good, that, and I'm thrilled. Yes. <laughs> I'm never happy when you make a good pun. That's <laughs> my job here. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, no, I, I would love to see you in any of those. I mean, it feels weird to say that Henry the Fourth is underrated, because uh, what Shakespeare play is. But um, I really do love that play, and I feel like uh-huh. that's... That's one that we did a lot in school, and then no one ever feels like doing it anymore after that. You don't see productions of Henry the Fourth that much, so no, no, because it's so long. It's because it's two parts, and you kind of have to do both, or it's not worth it. And yeah, you know, like it's it's, but it's a cool play. It's great. It's funny. It's it's exciting. It's so amazing. There's a real convergence of Shakespeare and homosexuality that is called Ian McKellen, and I continue to be grateful we have that. You know, no. that prestige gravitas. <laughs> a feat thing that he brought, you know, it even like, there's some straight actors who fall into that too. Like Jeremy Irons, you know, there's like a few, like, you know, that entire universe you belong in. So I hope like you get Ray more of there. Like a Ray yes, Fiennes. Ray Fiennes is exactly it. Everybody watch Coriolanus. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's another role I would, I would love to play. But also, you know, I think about when I was in school, Lee Pace, bookend, bookend, let's bookend Lee Pace, shall we? Um, <laughs> let's do that, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm game. <laughs> right. <laughs> but seeing him play Richard II was like, oh my God, I could do this. I can, I can, you know, this is, this is what, this is, this is so exciting. And, and, and there's so much there. Um, he's, he's, I, I, he should do a Shakespeare play again. He's so good. That just reminded me as we wrap up. Pushing Daisies, 2007, was literally, was there just like a, a Juilliard ABC series pipeline in the mid-2000s? <laughs> I mean, absolutely. We were, I mean, I remember we would all be at the same, like, parties, and we would all be, like, kind of eyeing each other, like, do they know? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, we should do an audit on that. That's very crazy. Yeah. yeah. Who, was, who was that ABC casting director at the time? And what did they know about Juilliard? Right. And also, like, that's when, isn't that when, like, Dirty Sexy Money is happening? There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in that season. Anyway, that's what our big book, our tell-all will be about. Yeah, it was, like, in the wake of, it was kind of in the wake of um, Desperate Housewives. Everything was, like, like, how do we do more things like that? And and the whimsy, you know, I think Ugly Betty was shortly after Desperate Housewives and Pushy Daisies was the very next year and... And Dirty Sexy Money was maybe that year or the next year. And and then Glee was shortly after that. It was like this whimsy happening on network that was that was great. I mean, they were all those shows were all really fun, colorful and sexy. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here, Michael. God, what a pleasure. You were such a fabulous interview, too. I'm so glad you came on. Thank you so much. I, I, I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Um, so thank you for having me and for knowing <laughs> so much about me ahead of time. And <laughs> Uh, someone put a gay microchip in us long ago. We, we've, no, we've, we've had you mainlined into our skulls for decades now. Yeah. We will be right back with Keep It. And we are back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Lewis, 
What's your keep it? My keep it is to a sentiment I see all over the place, here all over the place, but usually on Twitter, which is when people say, nobody asked for this in regards to a movie or a TV show recently regarding the real friends of WeHo. Faggot, if we only made a movie every time you fucking wanted it, <laughs> movies would suck. I can go to a movie right now and watch a hundred movies that are there because specifically fans are obsessed with asking for it, and they're all mid. They are, you know, it's like it's not. I, you know, I'm talking about the comic book universe, but it's <laughs> the, the endless sequels, reboots of things. That's all wrapped up in this conversation. It's all we think you are asking for it, and so we're going to give you this thing to, I guess, flatter you, you know, to make you think you're the creator of all of this. I think all of the best TV. All of the best movies are things I never would have guessed I wanted to see. If you had told me, what about a television drama about a 1960s ad man adjusting to the changing times and, you know, having a wife who's blonde and aloof? I wouldn't think that would be one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Nonetheless, it is Mad Men. I think people need to put more faith in the, like, creativity of artists, the uh People who are actually inventing the stuff that turns into classics, you know, the uh, and stop flattering themselves so much into thinking they could have done it themselves, which is, I think, at the heart of this statement. Right. And I mean, to quote Toni Morrison, please do. <laughs> if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, you must write it. You know, right. that entire sentiment is artists are creating things that are in their weird brains and then they put it out there. And then that becomes stuff that we want to consume. You know, I mean, obviously, this is coming from the sentiment of real friends of WeHo was fucking boring as hell. Um, That's the criticism. It's boring. Yes. Yeah. But you can say that without having to say the other thing. And honestly, I've sat through boring reality shows before, and I could even watch, I could even try and hate watch something like this. But man, the thing that they did that really annoyed the shit out of me with this series is they open it with confessionals about them responding to the backlash to the show and talking about the fact that they're making a reality TV show. It is far too early to be breaking the fourth wall in a premiere. Yeah, we have no grounds under which to understand even their friendships with each other, which we're immediately calling into question because Brad says something like, they told me not to do this with Todrick. And we're yes. all like, but we are on this TV show with him now. Aren't you the real friends of WeHo? <laughs> I'm reading the title, Real Friends. I'm reading the title. <laughs> I would say the actual real interesting part of the series that could have been an, a fun hook, to be honest, is, and then it wouldn't be called fucking Real Friends of WeHo, but it's Curtis, the black actor who's come, who's just recently come out and de- dealing with coming out um, to his parents and talking to another black man about it. Dorian, he opens his first scene is with Issa Rae, um, and, you know, she talks about, you know, like casting him with him being out and et cetera. And I think that, like, if you'd created an interesting show about this gay man in L.A. building a gay friend group um, now that he's come out, that is all the, like, fake conceit you need for a show like this, you know? But Now, does this mean you didn't watch the Colton Underwood show? <laughs> I did not. Because <laughs> we all learned a lot from it. I don't remember what we learned, but, you know, it's right here in my back pocket. Well, you know what? He had Issa Rae as his gay guide, uh, and Colton had Gus Kentworthy. Right. Draw your own conclusions. Ira, <laughs> what is your keep it this week? My keep it this week goes to the perennially horny 
Tucker Carlson. He sure is. That man, that gingerbread cookie is <laughs> always angry and always angry about something that, that like seems to have like gotten his small dick hard. Right. It is this time he's angry that like the M&Ms were basically rebranded and we were given these um these feminine M&Ms, you know, um, <laughs> these feminines. Sure. <laughs> uh he, I feel like he's ranted about the M and M's before. Like, did like wasn't he angry at the green M M&M and M being desexified and given uh, like sneakers? I want to be clear that Tucker Carlson is mad about the shoes that M and M's wear, and also how they lean seductively on one hip. Like he's mad at displays of femininity or masculinity and thinks certain M and M's deserve certain statures and certain stances and. I can't believe we even paid attention this long. He's just one of those names that comes up on the trending list on Twitter. You know the ones, like Piers Morgan. It used to be Ann Coulter. And it's you see it, and you're like, oh, someone needs to unplug Twitter, breathe into it, plug it back in. Because this is some bullshit we do not care about. Aside from the green M&M swapping out her go-go boots, you know, the brown M&M shortened the height of her heels. It was really just to make the M&Ms feel more inclusive, which I found funny in the first place because I don't think Gen Z is looking toward um, M&Ms um, to affirm their gender identities. They're not trying to befriend M&Ms. Yeah, right. No, but still, to be that fucking mad about an M&M is so weird and it truly is just him right it's just him it's just the way that he drives these conversations by one rant is psychotic to me and the way that the company decided to um roll back on their m&m plan uh and make maya rudolph the new um face of m&ms just because tucker carlson uh is the most prominent critic of the less sexy m&ms is so asinine meanwhile the real conversation is are tropical skittles racist i want to know what everybody thinks if i see a skittle playing a marimba did he earn that i don't know <laughs> i also want to shout out that he caught the purple eminem um plus size and obese and help me god let, help me god let me tell you something have you not heard of a peanut eminem <laughs> they've been here <laughs> the packaging is yellow. Brendan Fraser, please weigh in. And how is an M&M plus size? That is, that is, it's, I'm it's, in pain. It's a, it's a weird offshoot of this other thing that Tucker Carlson is, is famous for and other conservatives. It's like, they, they also always get mad at when you see um, larger bodies in workout gear. And it's this weird catch 22. It's always, Fat people should work out more so that they can look hot and we'd be attracted to, to them. But also, don't sell workout gear to fat people so that they can do what we want them to do. You know? it's You see a, a, a fat person in a Nike ad and it's, Nike is woke. I have been inhabited by the spirit of him and that means I am dry heaving. I can't continue this conversation. <laughs> I am in shock that it's occurring. You did. I appreciate where you're coming from, and now we must stop. 
Yeah, you know, I'm I'm sure there's some video out there of him melting down M&Ms and having them poured on his chest like the candle in the Living La Vida Loca video. <laughs> and I'm so sorry that I put that image into our listeners' heads today. By the way, the Living La Vida Loca video, very sexy for the time. 1999, very. right in the middle of the day. Jesus Christ, we were on fire. Baby, Ricky Martin in that video did things to me, okay? Yeah. You, you want to talk about Paul Mescal? Let's talk about Ricky Martin. Wow. She banged. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our episode this week. Thank you to Michael Yuri for joining us and truly letting us spend most of his interview fawning over Harrison Ford. Thank you so much. I, I can't yeah. ask for anything more. <laughs> uh, and we will be back with more Keep It next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, that's me, and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is filmed in front of a live studio audience. <laughs>